once again, it is the Christmas season. The Christmas season is upon us, and we thought there's no better gift than for us to give you episode 125, constituting the 125th consecutive attempt to silence us. That's not going to happen, not during Christmas. So welcome to Game of Crimes. I am the host with the most hair, at least, you know, Morgan here with my partner in crime. Hey, everybody. It's Murph. Welcome back. Hola, 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 amigos, amigos, players, players, dude, that's everybody in between. Well, this is going to be fun. We've got a great episode coming up. But before we get into that episode, just a little bit of housekeeping. Head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars for us. It means a lot. We get a lot of great comments and, and it helps with our visibility. And guys, it's the Christmas season. Just give us a review. Five stars. You know, like the, the you know, said the lamb to the little shepherd boy. Do you oh, see boy. what I see? I see five stars. How this about is you, Murph? downhill quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I see five stars, and I see I see a whole shitload of pumpkin spice in your future. Oh, not mine. Now, my wife, she loves that stuff, but not mine. We went shopping yesterday. Well, I'll tell you more about that later, but I, I picked up some pumpkin spice. So anyway, also head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Uh, that's where we put up information, especially with our guests coming up. We've got yet another book. We'll have some information about his website. So head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But I'm telling you, we're kicking it. We're having fun. We're killing it over on Patreon. Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just did we just did our review of Black Klansman. Murph has graduated from double secret probation to secret probation. He has almost redeemed himself. Oh, come on, man. No, no, no. Don't, don't give me this. Come on, man. <laughs> you screwed the pooch with Miami Vice. You should have been on triple secret probation. It was benevolent of me to just to cut it down to double secret. So, oh, y'all help me out here. Send Morgan some uh, hate mail or something. I don't know. Now, send us some positive reviews. For every five-star review we get, I'm going to consider removing uh, the uh, secret probation from Murph's uh, file, oh. which, by the way, is classified. Nobody gets to see it. So, we need a lot. We need a lot of reviews, y'all. Help me out. That's right. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. So we got 911 coming up. Uh, you know, uh, you can't make this shit up. I got some good stories ready for this one. Uh, we've got our case of the month. Uh, you know, just monthly Q&A. We've got Q&A already. Sandy Salvato, I'll talk about her, our favorite mafia queen. Already got her questions in. She is an overachiever, so she's got her questions in already for December, as all of you should. So just check us out. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. And also, hey guys, speaking of Sandy, head on over to our Facebook page, our fan page, Game of Crimes fans. Just go to Facebook, type it in, and uh, our favorite mafia queen who rules with an iron fist with the velvet glove will determine if you're worthy of interest. Uh, you know, And if you're a Seinfeld fan, we'll determine if you're sponge worthy. You'll just need to figure out that reference. Uh, and I don't recognize it, so uh, I'm lost with everybody else. <laughs> Seinfeld fans know exactly what I'm talking about. So, But head on over there. But hey, before we get started into this, we have to give a, everybody has disclaimers, right? So, you know, consult your warranty, all that good stuff. So, but ours is this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but what we Murph, don't, what Murph? we don't take ourselves serious at all. And how do we prove that? How do we prove? How do we how do we give people audible proof? I was going to say visible, but it's a podcast. Audible proof that we don't take this seriously. What do we well, do? We have something special that we call Get ready. Small- well, no, no, no. What time is it? It's time, it's time for Small Town Police Blogger. Come on, dude. We've done this 125 times. Surely you've learned it by now. <laughs> I know what it was. That's what I was saying. What is it time for? It's time for. Or, yeah, that's right. Hey, this is a this is a Christmas themed story that comes to us from Australia. 
in Carlingford, northwest of Sydney, population 28,943. Salute. So Murph, this is this this is a heinous crime. This may also may, this may constitute one of the gravest crimes ever committed in Australia. Uh-oh. What is it? Well, guy got his van jacked. 3:30 in the morning, he pulls up to a service station. Gets out to fill gas. He has got Christmas themed items inside of his vehicle. He goes in to uh, use the facilities, you know, pay for his gas. And a woman who's being described as of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander appearance in her early 30s with long black or brown hair, wearing dark clothing and carrying a white handbag, she hopped into the van and drove off. So he left it running? No, I think he left the keys in there, though. But in any event, that's that's not the tragedy. The greater tragedy, uh-huh. it contained... 10,000 Christmas-themed Krispy Kreme donuts. Oh. 10,000. Oh, that, that's a major felony. Well, oh. so, so the New South Wales police are saying, if you have any sweet leads or crispy CCTV footage, donut, keep it to yourself. <laughs> that's like every cop in the world right now has a tear in their eye. Oh man! Uh, well, they did. Uh, they are. Re- they did replace the ten thousand donuts, which are handmade fresh daily. According, <laughs> of course, they had to get that in there at their intended destinations. We're happy to advise that customers who were intending to purchase who had already orders placed uh, will get their donuts as stock has already been replaced. So, and and the poor driver is he looking for a job? I don't know, but I'll tell you what. There's no greater tragedy than watching <laughs> ten thousand donuts drive off. Oh my God. Oh, that that's just that. Oh, it makes you want to cry. Yeah, well, hey, you know you know how there are um, who done it? Yep. Well, this is a moo done it. Moo done it, okay. Comes to us from West Bridgewater. I've got I've got four quick stories, just small town police plotters. West Bridgewater, Connecticut, population seven thousand seven hundred seven. Salute. Right? So um, they get a call. People are, you know. Apparently, there were some a ruckus going out on one of the ball fields, so police department shows up, officer shines a flashlight, and he catches in the act three head of cattle out on the field. What were they doing? I don't know, but uh, they said, nothing to see here, officer. You know, just move along, you know. We're on our way to Chick-fil-A. On our way to Chick-fil-A, that's right, yeah. Hey, another one quick. This one, Bridgewater's a little bit bigger town, but um, they got a call from a man at a laundromat who reports somebody stole his sneakers from a washing machine. Um, But they did not make a clean escape, though. Uh, They were identified, the items were returned to the rightful owner, and charges were filed. Very good. Now, where's where's the catch in this one? There's not. That's just it. Gets a washing machine, sneakers, they made a clean escape, clean getaway. That was it. That was it. All right. And I'll tell you what. um, (laughs) I'm sorry, folks. He'll be here all week. Don't try the veal. Uh, No, no. Hey, don't try the veal. Wereham, Wereham, Connecticut, population 23,303. Salute. You always wanted to get one of these calls, Murph. I know you did. You wanted to get the report of a loose rat. (laughs) One out of 12. One out of 12. We're spawned to a report of a loose loose rat. However, though. It just wasn't a loose rat. When the officer cleared the scene, he said, provided a larger trap to the homeowner. That was one big rat. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) I don't think I'd want that call. And our final little small town police blotter, this happened actually November 6th at 2.13 in the morning. Bridgewater police received a 911 call from a woman screaming Mm -hmm. over the phone. Uh, She was on her smartphone, so they had to ping her. They had to find her 
found her along a location along Main Street. They were officers were dispatched and reported the woman had every reason to yell. You know why she was yelling and screaming? Why's that? She was given birth. Oh, damn. <laughs> One of the officers reported, we got a baby here. <laughs> I might have been screaming down there with her. Call the ambulance. Call the ambulance. Somebody call uh, one Mother and child, though, were taken to a hospital for follow-up care. Everybody is doing fine. Somebody call 199. Get some help out here. <laughs> yeah, you damn right I'm screaming. Get your ass out of here. Oh, uh, man. Um, <laughs> Hey, well, let's, let's, um, speaking of screaming, um, we did, we, there was no screaming involved with our next guest, but you know what though? This is fun. This comes to us from our buddy, Jim Lawler, who we had on, you know, we had him on a previous episode, Mm -hmm. uh, Jim, former CIA, uh, case officer, operations officer, not agent. We discussed why you don't say agent, it's officer. And, uh, Jim referred us into this next gentleman. And this next gentleman is very interesting. Uh, you might've heard about him. His name is Jack Barsky, wrote a book called Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. This guy was what they referred to in the business as an illegal. Mm-hmm. So he was an illegal resident. Um, work, now, he was from East Germany, but he ended up working for KGB, comrade. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if he knew Boris Badenov, you know, and Natasha. What do you think? Natasha. <laughs> Don't care about Boris. <laughs> I, you know what? I got to tell you, I never dreamt. I never dreamt any time in my life that we would get to interview a former KGB agent. I mean, this is for me. This is one. You know, this is monumental. This is. You might say, "What's this got to do with law enforcement?" Well, what he did was illegal, and you'll find out how the our brothers in the FBI caught him. Um, and he was committing slick. espionage against the United States. And the other thing you're going to find out too, he's got potentially a tie-in to one of the biggest traitors ever. Mm-hmm. In U.S. history, and uh, you have to find out about that. But this is a guy who aden- who ad- adopted multiple identities in order to get to the United States. Uh, and like he says, uh, you know, he's got a tangled uh, tangled allegiances, a secret life. But he did eventually join Team America. Yeah, and it's it's. Uh I tell you what, Jack, it was an honor having you on here, even though you were, you know, against us to start with. Once you got here, you realized how good the United States is and how screwed up socialism and communism is. You know, now he's a Christian brother and and uh, just, I was just, <laughs> I, I hate to say uh, in awe. I wasn't in awe, but I just never dreamt we'd get an opportunity like this. So this is a really, really special interview we've done today. Yeah, he's got a website, jackbarsky.com, B-A-R-S-K-Y, jackbarsky.com. His book is Deep Undercover, uh, My Life uh, and Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. But Murph, we can't hear about this. Mm -hmm. We won't never find out about it unless I ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous? And believe it or not, biggest game of all, espionage is one of the biggest game of all, the game of crimes. Are you ready to play this? Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, you really do have to get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on for this one. This is a once in a lifetime. Let's let's listen to Jack Barsky. Everybody, you know, we call this Game of Crimes, um, and there is no bigger game sometimes than a game, uh, and it's the game of espionage. It was We go back to the Cold War, uh, spy versus spy, you know, the United States versus the Soviet Union, and there's nobody better suited to talk about this than somebody who lived that life for years. We're going to get into this. So 
we got this intro again to Murph, I believe, from a mutual friend. Did we not? We did from a former CIA, not agent, but ops officer, Jim Lawler. So, Jim, thank you very much for the introduction today to today's guest. And our guest today is Mr. Uh, Jack Barsky. Now, that's the name he goes by now. I don't think that was your original name, was it, Jack? No, the name I was born with uh, um, is very German, and I hate to repeat it because then Americans like to... uh, to imitate and it doesn't work. <laughs> don't don't do you don't have to say anything on here you're not comfortable with saying. <laughs> I remember watching a clip of you. I think it was um, uh, uh, Mike Wallace. I believe was interviewing you on sixty minutes, and he he kind of had to pry out your name from you. It's kind of like what was your name? Well, no, yeah, what was, was Steve Croft and oh, Steve was, Croft. Yeah. That was the first ever question that I was asked in in, in the media. And uh, it was like, it, it was a very interesting, we, we immediately went off script and that was funny. <laughs> well, it, you know, Jack, as we go by, the fact, that, go ahead, the fact that you're saying anything associated with your past life is funny, that just tells me you got a good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Jack, like you said, when we got started, I know you've done hundreds of interviews. We, we kind of, we don't want to dive into just the usual stuff, but we do want to just kind of, let's set a little bit of context because to get to where you are today, you had to start somewhere. So um, just kind of let everybody just kind of give us a recap, but, but where did you grow up originally and under what conditions? Okay, so uh, born in 1949, that was four years after the end of World War II, and uh, grew up in East Germany. Initially, it was the Soviet-occupied uh, zone of Germany, uh, and that became the German Democratic Republic. Uh, the only true word uh, in, in that in the, among those trees is German. It was. Neither- <laughs> I, I, I notice all of these dictator nations, like the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. The, the, you know, it's it's never democratic, right? Right. <clears throat> so, uh, grew up in the country which was actually a blessing because the cities were like demolished. A, a lot of them, their pictures like that, that, uh, that blow your mind. And there was, a, there was hunger and there was homelessness and all that. I did not experience any of that. Uh, I, I can't remember ever having been hungry as a child. How but, far away know, from Berlin were you? Uh, you know, obviously they divided up East and West Berlin when they dropped the wall, but where you were living in Germany, which yeah. became East Germany, where were you living? I was uh, south uh, east of Berlin, about maybe seventy miles or so, um, and and right on the border with Poland. So in that, and it was a very very poor section of Germany traditionally, uh, but poor soil, almost no industry, no no institu- institutions of higher learning. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I my both my parents were teachers. And uh, so they paid a lot of attention uh, to, to my education. And the school system was pretty darn good. Hmm. Uh, this is one thing that the communist rulers uh, paid a lot of attention to, to, to educate the new leaders of, uh, of the nation and, of course, also uh, brainwash us in a big way. Yeah, I was going to say educate and indoctrinate because once they've got you in the classroom, you yeah. know, they can do those things. Um, when when was the first time as growing up you realized that 
you know, things were different in other places like West Germany or, you know, the United States, other places. When did you first realize that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm under a communist rule here. It's now East German, uh, you know, it's East Germany. <laughs> That's a good question because uh, um, it depends upon what level of realization. And I started realizing that some things were better in the West when I listened to uh, West German radio because their music was so much better. And, you know, when, when, when the Beatles first came out, this was, uh, I was, I think, uh, 12, 13 years old, Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, and the, you know, the, the beat revolution. I mean, the, 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 the East German pop music was horrendous. Nobody listened to it. So, but, but, but other than that, you know, because we didn't, I didn't have, uh, my family didn't have relatives in the West. Um, uh, there was no West German television in my house. So I only knew the one thing about the music and some, you know, whispering here and there, you know, that they have bananas every, uh, all year round in West Germany. But, you know, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to that, even through, throughout high school, uh, because whatever was good, quote-unquote, in the West was uh, countered by the fact that uh, we knew that in West Germany uh, there were um, there were Nazis in the government, ex-Nazis, which is actually historically true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the other thing that uh, we were taught in school, that um, you know, the world was going towards communism, the third world was more and more aligned with, uh, with the Soviet Union, and, uh, you know, and the reason that uh, the United States and West Germany were, were not much better off and if, as far as standard of living is because they, they, they robbed the wealth from, from the third world. So not a whole lot of thinking about that. The first time I really noticed a difference was um, when I uh, was in, in Berlin for a three-week uh, sort of practice trip that was just in, at the very uh, visit when I was actually invited officially to join the KGB, I had a trip to West Berlin, okay, just, just to, you know, see if I can handle this, to be on the other side of the wall. And I, I emerged from the subway, and I looked around, and I said, wow. <laughs> that this is a movie that's in, in 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 color because where I came from it was all in black and white and brown. It was like gray, right? Now, because I was going to ask you when you were growing up. So, if you were born in '49, around the time that you would have been 12 or 13 years old, that's when the Berlin Wall came down. You know, in August of that year. Indeed, 1961, uh, and uh, by coincidence, uh, when. When they started erecting the wall, my parents and I, my dad had a car actually, and we had uh, just spent a couple of weeks uh, on the Baltic Sea for a summer vacation, and we were going to visit Berlin. And actually, in those days, you could go to West Berlin and and you know maybe buy some stuff that we couldn't get in the east. And as we are driving down the autobahn, all of a sudden there was military, and they wouldn't let us go. So what's going on? Eh. We're not telling you, you you can't just get in. So that was the very first day of when they, when they were start, starting to to uh, build that wall. And we couldn't find out until, you know, obviously in those days there, there was no car radios until we got home and, and turned the TV on. 
Okay, so we, the East German government, uh, erected the anti-fascist uh, protection wall, or whatever the, the, the right uh, translation was. It was just to make sure that uh, we wouldn't be invaded by the evil Nazis from from the West. When indeed uh, it was uh, to make sure that uh, the the flight of East Germans, particularly highly educated East Germans, to the West would be stopped. Did, did yeah, the, the, I think the clue in that is when when you've got East Germans trying to escape to the West Side and they get shot. That might be. Yeah, the, but I didn't know that. That wasn't. You know, listen. When we when we listen to West German radio stations, uh, uh, the moment they started talking, we turned it off. Oh really? Yeah, you know, there was no, you know, I'm I'm a fundamentally super curious person, but but somehow, uh, because I was doing well in high school and then even better in college, I I sort of uh, rose instinctively to what uh, what was the East German elite, mm-hmm. uh, and I had no reason to doubt what they were telling us. And I had, you know, the, and, and you know the, that there was just no other opinion around me. And and the folks, by particularly in college, we had some students and uh, uh, you know maybe a handful of students who were sort of dissidents, but they weren't really good students. Mm-hmm. So they were they were isolated, and nobody listened to them. So so it was a uh, the the brainwashing was perfect. Okay, so I I. But by the time I, I said yes to the KGB, I was 100% con- uh, convinced that I was on the right side of history mm-hmm. and I was going to, you know, do the right thing to uh, um, liberate all the su- suppressed uh, nations and individuals in the world and uh, help uh, erect the communist paradise on Earth. And oh, by the way, just to, to add, that, add that in, uh, Marxism-Leninism was taught to us as if it were a science. Uh, we we were taught that Marx discovered the uh, uh, the science that dictates the uh, uh, the um, evolution of mankind and of 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 of, of, uh, of uh, the you know yeah yeah man and and how that there was a clear uh, line from you know starting with slavery then with uh, uh, the Middle Ages, um, you know, the, the what's that called? Uh, when you had the kings and the queens and the, and the peasants. Um, feudalism. 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 Uh, and then capitalism and eventually... Uh, communism. Communism. And it, we were told this was just as scientific as physics. And, you know, again, everybody... Everybody said the same thing and oh by the way the people that taught us very were very very smart people they all believed in in that nonsense and we have similar things going on right now in in western society where very smart people believe in very very bad stupid things well put a pin in that because that's you you actually started bringing up something i want to talk about as we get towards the end because there's a lot of things going on in the world but let's let's circle back for just a minute um to your parents to that first time when you 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 ran into the soldiers and the walls coming down do you remember or did your parents ever have a discussion is that maybe we need to go to west germany maybe we need to pack up our stuff and leave Did that discussion ever happen that you know of no not at all uh as a matter of fact 
my father was a, a party member uh, and he had a decent career. He, uh, we, we did one move. We moved from a, a small village to a small town where my dad became uh, uh, the principal of a middle school. Uh, the only hint with regard to the West and, and parents talking about it was my father ruminated as to whether he should put an antenna on uh, on the house that we lived in so we could uh, watch West German television. Uh, but he didn't do it because those antennas had to be very powerful and they were physically large. Mm. And that would have killed his career. Uh, and that was it. No, me, us moving to the West, of, I, I, if he ever had a thought like that, or, or my mother had a thought like that, uh, it was not shared with us. Um, I had a brother and, and myself. No way. Well, you, I mean, you grew up on the, on the east side there before the wall, but still east side. And and pretty much, like you said, I, I loved it when you said brainwashing because that's kind of where I was headed on the, the next comment. But the prop, propaganda and the indoctrination that you had, you really didn't know what was available on the other side of the wall, especially once they built the wall, right? I mean, you didn't know you didn't know that maybe you guys didn't have the kind of food and as much food or uh, the entertainment or whatever. Yeah, there there was one hint uh, when, as I said, we didn't have relatives in the West, but somehow, and I don't know, there uh, there was one uh, very very tenuous connection. And one time we got a a package for Christmas that had all kinds of stuff in it, food that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, cereal. We didn't know what to do with cereal, but actually, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just eat it or put milk on it, or you know, put yeah, beer I don't on know. It, right? it didn't come with instructions because everybody in the West knew what to do with it. So, um, wow. no, uh, it was maybe once or twice, and uh, there were, I think, bananas and oranges in it, and you know, I didn't really care. You know, the, the oranges tasted good. I didn't like bananas, and we we had some really Decent fruits coming out of a garden. Uh, my parents grew, grew strawberries and other kinds of berries, and there, there were grapes and apples and, and pears. So during the, during the summer and the fall, we had some pretty decent food. Mm-hmm. And the lack of meat uh, over time, uh, in, initially there wasn't a whole lot of meat available, maybe on Sunday or you had to have your own uh, chickens and uh, and rabbits and so forth. Uh, n- none of that none of that that really mattered because there was nobody that we knew who had it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Your worldview is shaped by what you know. And if you don't know anything else, you think you're at the top of the pyramid, right? So, yeah, exactly right. I was going to ask a quick question. If I I think I can't remember where I remember this from, is there a rabbit dish in German called Hassenpfeffer? Yeah, I just don't know. That that is, this was a a word I'm familiar with, but we didn't use it. So I don't know what that means. It's, uh, no, it's okay. It was just more one of the things. Came. Hey, but the other thing too, I want to talk about kind of as you're starting your formative years and you talk about eventually you came on the radar of KGB. And I, I want to point out too, folks, you can go to his site, jackbarsky.com. He's got a great book. It's called Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. This will obviously be on our site. So jackbarsky.com. I wanted to kind of talk about, as you're going through this, there was the KGB, but East Germany, their Ministry of State Security, everybody might 
remember it as the name is the Stasi. How come you did not come up? I mean, how was it that it allowed you to move towards the KGB as opposed to the Stasi? Why would not the Stasi be interested in you in the same way the KGB was, or did KGB overrule Stasi and to get you? Well, that's that's a wild guess. You nobody ever explained that to me. Uh, and you know, when uh, when I uh, was first approached um, by somebody who you know made contact, I thought it was Stasi because the guy was German, but. He wasn't. He really wasn't. He was a volunteer for the KGB. Uh, that's just indication that the KGB uh, had first dibs, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I, I remember one stat, if I remember right, at one time, I think there was about 16 or 17 million people in East Germany. And at one time, they thought around between the actual people who worked for Stasi and the informers, there was about 2 million. It's like, wow. I mean, there was just the penetration into society. And, you know, uh, by the Stasi, did you ever come – I mean, do you recall um, as you were growing up, kind of you talked about the volunteer pitching you in a sense. Were you pitched by anybody else before that, like by the Stasi, or was this the, – when this volunteer approached you, was that the first uh, pitch that you remember or know that of? That was the first pitch I remember, and uh, quite frankly, I don't recall that any friend of mine uh, – had disclosed to me that they were working with the Stasi, even though a couple of them were while we were in college uh, as volunteers. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, I just got to throw that in because it's, (laughs) it's delicious. My best friend in college. I mean, we were really, really close wound up. uh, He he became an an employee of the Stasi uh, as a chemist and he wound up uh, eventually be, as a, the head of the forgery department. And uh, they were so good that the KGB bought uh, forged passes from the, from the Stasi. And it's, it's a good chance that I was traveling with a fake passports that my friend made. How about that? And you didn't know at the time that, that that's what he was doing is what you were oh, saying? Oh, no, I did not. No, 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 no. This is all, you know, I... The moment I moved to Berlin for my training with the KGB, uh, I pretty much lost all contact with everybody I left behind. Well, that, let's, that included your immediate family as well, right? That That is correct. Now, you know, I, I still had some loose contact, but I was already uh, living uh, under a cover story. You know, I, I, I told everybody I was uh, starting to work for the uh, – the uh, foreign ministry in, in in East Berlin. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about now. Um, what was it about your education, your background, that made you you think um, a candidate for KGB? What were they interested in you? And let's talk about now that approach now because. You're in East Germany. You're approached uh, by a volunteer, but for KGB. So let's let's start talking about that. Let's talk about how you start getting into this life. Uh, the, you know this this work for KGB. So, from what was the pitch like? What was the conversation like that led you to think, hey, this is something I want to do? Oh, the conversation was like I I didn't really take it very seriously. I just uh, you know when, when when I was approached, it was um, on a, on a Saturday. I was in my dorm room, and this uh, fellow showed up and. And he his 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 cover initially was really stupid. It was this this guy was the stupidest uh, KGB guy uh, <laughs> I met in in my entire career there because he his cover story was so not credible because he said he 
he he was from the uh, local factory that uh, very very uh, sophistic that made sophisticated you know high precision optical instruments uh, that actually could be sold to the West that was that good and he he said that he was working for the company and he wanted to know what uh, um, what uh, my plans were after I finished my my degree and the idiot should have known that that was like impossible because the there was no recruitment going on and uh, the companies didn't recruit you were assigned to uh, a job after you graduated okay mm-hmm. so i knew immediately then you know he, he my guess was stasi and then eventually he changed his mind and uh, he changed the tone of the conversation and he told me oops i you know i've got to admit i'm really not uh, from that company, uh, I'm, I work for the government, and I remember that that sentence as if it was spoken yesterday. And I just want to ask you: Could you envision uh, for you to uh, one day work for the government? And uh, I, in my mind, I was thinking: Could you tell me what part of the government? But I, I already <laughs> knew. So you know, I, I, I was a pretty smart. Young man. Well, so speaking said, of that, real quick, let's put a let's. Uh, I want before we move on, talk about your uh, college education. So, what were you studying? What were you training in? Because that's going to factor in later. Um, you know, yeah, I studied. Ahead. I studied chemistry, and it turned out to be really, really good at it. You know, I I, I rose to the top of a class of uh, seventy, and we were all hand selected. We were already elite. Uh, you know, as far as high school graduates. And I rose to the very top, and uh, I, in my junior year, I received a, a, a scholarship, which was called the Karl Marx Scholarship, which was restricted to 100 concurrent holders in the entire country. Wow. Now, that made me a standout, okay? And, and, and the recruitment, the first contact came after uh, that me receiving that scholarship and you, you need to know that in those days and none of that, you know, I was just playing around. I was doing, I was doing great. I did got, get good grades. I played basketball on the, on the, on the college team. Life was good. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't really, I, I just, you know, I wasn't very <clears throat> purposeful, so to speak. So when when he asked that question, I said, "Yes, but not as a chemist." And he knew uh, he got the answer that he wanted. Uh, I <clears throat> I just figured, you know, let's see what, what what you know. It might be it would be interesting. Let's put it this way: there was not even a thought, and you know, I didn't take it seriously. And I I, te- <clears throat> I tell people in those days, I I you know. A purposeful life. I didn't know what that meant. I played life. I was very playful for a long time, actually. And oh, by the way, that helped me get through the lone, lonely existence as a as an undercover illegal. Yeah. In your book, you talk about how your ambition at that time was to become a, pro- a professor of chemistry at the university right. you attended, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, uh, teaching is in, in my blood. My parents were both teachers, and I, uh, I. I learned some subjects that were really difficult by teaching them, mm-hmm. you know, high level math. So, uh, you know, I like teaching. I liked uh, sharing the knowledge that I had with others. <clears throat> when, you, when you, 
When you say high level math, does that include counting your fingers and your toes? Because <laughs> that's what I do. Murph, if he could count any higher. Okay, so are hard. you referring to the fact that when uh, when I uh, when I uh, indicate that's three, I I do it different from Americans. <laughs> yeah. And By the way. That's that's you, you bring up a very good point too. We'll, we'll talk about this too in terms of learning culture and trade calf because that is a that is something between how Germans uh, you know or some Europeans do three thumb you know first finger second finger and Americans Not you know Merck's got three up like that. Well, that's because your that first finger is your pew pew trigger. It's your booger finger. So yeah. you don't want you know, you know what the second one is, right? <laughs> yeah, one. Hey, you used the term of art. Same thing we did with Jim Lawler. We want to kind of define a term of art because in the CIA, I live in Northern Virginia. There's so many people running around going, yeah, I'm a CIA uh, agent. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. no, an agent is somebody who spies for the United States. That's so right. you, you right. used the word illegal. So there were legal residents and illegal residents. Tell us, you know, so in that term of art, explain the difference between being a legal and illegal resident. Well, legal uh, typically would be under under cover of uh, being a diplomat, so to speak. On on the co- the, co- the cover story would be a, a diplomat, and and you know what happens if a diplomat is caught spying, they they just get uh, kicked out. PNG persona non grata and right. has to leave the country. Now then we have the Knox that operate under their own identity, but they are are subject to arrest if they're not careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Knox is not official cover. Right. And then <clears throat> then there are the illegals, and illegals operate under a different identity altogether. And, and, and you know, I, we were arrogant enough to uh, send me to uh, <clears throat> the United States uh, with a backstory that I was actually born in the U.S. You know, Jack Barsky was a real person who passed away at the age of 11, and we stole that identity. So, so we were completely unprotected. Uh, you know, illegals were unprotected. Uh, if if I was caught, you know, initially it would, uh, the attempt would have been made to to turn me. That's typical for intelligence uh, work. And if if I was not cooperative, I would have wound up in jail and spent quite a few years in jail until maybe the Soviet Union would get me out by you know exchanging me <clears throat> for somebody that they you know, uh, set up and accused of espionage. Well, there's, 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 there's a tactic that, uh, I've seen play out in today's world too, you know, mm-hmm. um, as I'm thinking, uh, Steve, Victor Boot and Brittany Griner, you oh, set somebody yeah. up. It and just then, makes me um, sick to my stomach when we think about yeah. it. Hey, well, Jack, let, let's talk about the, let's talk about the entrance into KGB. So you're pitched by this person. Um, how does that go? How long do you think you were on the radar of them before they made the pitch, or is it because you made that list of the Karl Marx scholarship? Did that put you on the radar? Just to uh, finish the story of the initial recruitment, so this this German in, uh, invited me for a, a luncheon uh, at the number one restaurant in town, and that is where he introduced me to Herman. And he said, when I when I got to the table. He, he pointed to this other fellow and he said, I would like to introduce you to Herman. We are working with our Soviet comrades. Now, Herman, that wasn't his real name, you know, and I don't even know if I ever met any KGB uh, agent who gave me their real first name. You know, we, Sounds familiar. I, I, <laughs> Bob, I was, Bob, yeah. Just yeah, so Herman, and, and as, as soon as, 
you know, I shook Herman's hand. The German who never introduced himself uh, by name at all disappeared. So I was now with Herman and, and I, it, it, Herman and I had an unofficial relationship for 18 months. And we met roughly once a week uh, initially uh, in his vehicle and just talked about stuff, you know, what it might be like to be a spy. Uh, Typically, the idea was for me to go to West Germany. And, you know, that made a lot of sense because, well, the Stasi had about a thousand agents in in West Germany because, you know, there were no difference in language, no minor differences that could be explained. And, uh, and there were no cultural issues, so and the U.S. was not talked about. Uh, we and he gave me some little tasks to do to see uh, how well I would do, just like uh, reaching out to strangers and befriending them and finding out some stuff about them. And we talked about what it might be like and all of this. And he became like an ersatz father to me. He was about ten years older than me, and I we talked about everything, you know. How are you doing with the girls? I said, I don't know. I'm a little bit shy about this. Oh, oh, the, I still remember that. You know, they they want they want to have a boy the same way you want to have a girl. I said, okay. And I and it went on and on and on. Uh, and now, I in hindsight, I I understand that he was studying me and studying me as to whether I fit a uh, a profile that the KGB had in mind with regard to who would be a good candidate for this job of illegal. And then uh, I found out about this profile. Uh, there's a fellow who, <clears throat> who was the head of the directorate S illegals in the KGB by the name of Vadim Ch- uh, Ch- Kirpichenko, who was interviewed after, you know, the KGB di- uh, didn't exist anymore. And he gave a, a, a list of character traits that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And as I'm looking through that list, um, um, if, if, if you don't mind, I can go uh, pick up a document and read it for you. Uh, if, if not, you know. Yeah, no, no, let's, this, this is the whole purpose. I mean, this mm-hmm. is getting behind, this is put, peeling back the onion, getting behind the covers. Yeah, get that document. Let's talk yeah, about it. It, it will take like uh, 30 seconds. Okay. While he's doing that, uh, Murph, he's getting that document. I mean, think about this. This is the ultimate game of cat and mouse. You've got somebody now from East Germany, thought he was being recruited by East Germany, only to be recruited by KGB. And think about this. When you were recruiting, he's he's in his safe there. It looks like his safe room getting (laughs) the document. Think about when you were recruiting informants and confidential sources and stuff, you wouldn't spend 18 months doing it. It's almost like, oh, hey, guys. We, <laughs> maybe, maybe 18 minutes. 18 minutes. And then, you know, hey, guys, either flip or fly. You know, you're, you're going to be one of those others. Mm-hmm. So, Jack, while you're doing that, we're just talking about kind of, uh, you know, in, in our business and stuff, too, especially on the law enforcement side, the thought of spending 18 months recruiting somebody is anathema to the way it works, you know, when you need a case to be made. So just the sheer patience of, of KGB. And again, Kirpichenko uh, in this interview said that they literally they scanned hundreds and hundreds of of of, of people, and uh, even even after they recruited them, that didn't mean that that they were deployed. So it's not me saying it. He said that we were the elite of the elite. Period. Okay. And, and here's here's the list of uh, 
character traits that they were looking for. Quickness of intellect, high erudition, language abilities, bravery, focus, quick response to fluid situations, hardiness to stress, adaptation to completely new conditions of life. Well, well, this is my favorite. Well-controlled inclination to adventure. Ease of transformation, emotional stability. So, and when when I read this, that pretty much described me and still describes me today. Um, they were just looking for people who could operate by themselves, on themselves, and very quickly make the right decisions without having without the ability to, uh, you know, consult with uh, a handler, so to speak. So. This first meeting with uh, Herman, uh, did that occur after you made the uh, Karl Marx scholarship list you were talking about? Oh, yes, about? absolutely. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Is that because everybody has sources they look at? What are our funnels we look at? And that's probably was one of theirs, right? When you made a list like that, it's well, like. Just, just like the CIA, I don't know if they're still doing it, but used to uh, pretty much uh, recruit uh, Ivy League uh, students. The KGB looked for the smart people in, 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 in good schools, for sure. Yeah. So during this 18-month process, what were you doing for work? Uh, okay, so I was finishing my degree, and for, and for one year, uh, I was already uh, an employee of the university. Uh, my official title was assistant professor, However, I was paid to be the the secretary of the youth organization of the uh, uh, chemistry department. That, that was a full time job. There, there was I did a little bit of teaching, but you know I was paid to be a functionary. And and you know thank God that the KGB stepped in because this would have most likely uh, meant that I w- was going to have a career in politics in East Germany. I was already recruited and I was told, you know, to my next job would be the deputy secretary of the uh, youth organization for the, for the, for the entire university, which would have meant that I would have stepped up to the secretary. And guess what? Where do you go from there? Party, you know, government shit. I, I, I would have died because you know, once you're in there, you will find out the lies. Because I, you know, I met some uh, uh, high school uh, uh, friends of mine who wound up working in the government. Like my, actually, my first girlfriend wound up uh, working at, uh, uh, in the state planning commission, and she found out very quickly how the the numbers were cooked. Hmm. Hey. You know, that's another thing, too. As you started getting older, did you start seeing, um, did you start kind of seeing behind the curtain, like we say, uh, you know, the Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain? Because I'm thinking of like Russia. The elites get the better apartments, the better cars. They have the Dachau's, you know, they've got their little homes in the, uh, you know, in the country. Did you start, as you started getting older and started getting more mature about seeing these things, did you start seeing that separation between the elites and the ruling class and then everybody else? No, because I guess I guess I didn't <coughs> I guess I didn't want to see it because I I was going to join this elite no matter what, right? So 
why why even start questioning it and and the, <clears throat> okay so the the, ideolo- the ideology was such um, we were supposed to be a, a, a country that was ruled by the working class <clears throat> but the working class had to have a representative and that was the party and the party was uh, you know the, it was hierarchical and the central committee uh, was, and we and so this was all fine with me <clears throat> I had no clue about what was going on in East Germany and the Soviet Union until after the wall came down. And I was able to do some research and find out the truth. Well, well let's, so let's talk about that. So during that period, what, what does it finally take or how does it finally come to fruition to where you make that next step? You go, okay, I'm in. I'm going uh, to work for KGB. Yeah, that, as, I, as I said, there was as part um, – uh, one, at one point, Herman told me that, uh, you know, I, there was a, a three-week uh, trip to Berlin planned to, you know, give me a little more training. And so I met uh, another KGB agent, and he, he was my handler for the three weeks. And, you know, he gave me some tasks, and he gave me some West German literature to read and stuff like that. And we talked a little more specifically what it might be like to go as, a, as an illegal into West Germany. And on the last day of that uh, three-week trip, he took me to the headquarters of the Soviet Army in, in, in uh, East Berlin, in Karlshorst. And it was the headquarters of the KGB as well. And uh, um, we went. We both entered an office, and there was a. It, it was a, a big office with a big desk with a small mi- uh, man behind it, and a, and a bust of Felix Jaszczynski, the founder of the KGB. So it was very impressive. But uh, you know, the, and when this small small man opened his mouth, he wasn't small anymore. That was a. Was a very strong uh, voice with a with a big psychological footprint, and we, we did a little bit of small talk. He spoke Russian. I understood enough Russian to uh, figure out that I didn't re- I didn't really care about what he was talking about. You know, the reason why we were, we were, sp- were going to be spying on the evil West Germans and whoever else that we were going to be spying on, and uh, then abruptly he. He, he asked a question which I was not prepared for. So are you in or not? And I'm thinking, oh, shit, it's getting serious now. Mm-hmm. Because at the, up until that point, I had not really uh, thought that I, one day that question would be asked. And I wasn't prepared for it, so I played for time. I said, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, quali- if I'm qualified and I don't know. You know, and, and I'm not trained. And he said, "Don't worry about it. You are qualified, and we will train you. However, we also work only with people who can make decisions quickly. Uh, and I give you until tomorrow noon. Uh, that made for a sleepless night. Mm-hmm. And it, I went back and forth, back and forth. You know, what were I you weighing? You were talking about going back and forth. How did you approach making that decision? You know, what was your? Pro- some people write a list on one side. You know, the pros, yeah, exactly. the cons. That's exactly what I did with my, you know, my my scientific approach to decision making. And and you even uh, I even um, <clears throat> assigned prior, uh, you know, sort of numeric priorities. 
And then I added it all up and the end result was 50-50. <laughs> now you're too down to flip a coin, right? <laughs> yeah. And so now this is where your subconscious uh, uh, takes over. Uh, there were three factors that uh, made me say yes. N- number one, the flattery to be invited by what I knew at the time, the most uh, powerful intelligence organization on, uh, in, in the world, be- being recruited by them. Number two, my my adventurous nature, you know, mm-hmm. I was going to be able to travel to the West. And, you know, Germans have Germans have something in their DNA. We we like to travel. It's called Wanderlust. Uh, <laughs> and I've, I just really wanted to see Western countries. And <clears throat> and lastly, and that is something that nobody figured out about me. I, I, I was, uh, and I had an anti-authorian streak, a pretty strong anti-authorian streak. And I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do. And that's why I almost got kicked out of high school because I, I challenged teachers and I, but I learned to fit in. So, but that's, that, that streak was said, yay, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be outside the law. In East Germany, I'm going to be outside the law everywhere I'm going. So you put this all together, and it was a 51 to 49 decision. Hmm. Wow. So interestingly enough about that, too, um, you talk about making that decision. Did your three weeks in Berlin, was a lot of what was said before, because you were talking about education and indoctrination, because now you're in West Berlin. How was, when you landed there and you started walking around, how big of a difference between East Berlin and West Berlin or your side, when you were in West Berlin, how did that not tempt you to say, man, I, I really like life here. Maybe these guys are getting it right and the communists have got it wrong. Did that thought ever creep into your head or had you been so indoctrinated by that point? Not, not, a, not, a, not even a hint of a thought about that. You've you got to understand uh, we were, because at the end of the war, that we knew there was the Marshall Plan that uh, put West Germany back on its feet rather quickly. And we knew that the Soviet Union did what they were allowed to do to take reparations out of East Germany. So uh, we were behind and we were catching up, okay? And, and at that time, the one, of, the one aspect of the catching up was our athletes, uh, you know, the, the East German, uh, the Communist Party paid a lot of attention, as you know, include, and included doping, which we didn't know, to, to uh, develop elite, elite athletes. To, and, and I was thinking of that joke of the East German women's swim team that almost looked like guys instead of girls. You know, you talked about doping and steroids, you know, looking at the Olympics and stuff yeah, before they got yeah, good at it. Yeah, exactly. But, but, you know, this was a time when... Uh, we uh, already had colored television, and and we and, and and East Germany was recognized as a country and had a seat at the United Nations. So uh, I just knew we we, we <laughs> there there was a slogan. Let me see if I can say that, uh, what we were going to do uh, with in our competition with West uh, West Germany at. Um, uh, pass West Germany without catching up. 
<laughs> kind of stupid, but we believed it. We we believed that we would be better off uh, within ten years. We would we would beat the crap out of uh, West Germany the same way Khrushchev was uh, uh, bragging when he was in the United States. You know, we'll we'll pass you, <laughs> and I believed in it. So, hmm. um, so now you're at this eighteen months. You make that decision. What happens now? You walk back in there. You say, "I'm in." Now, how does what what changes for you? What how does your training start now? Where do they take you? What do they do with you? So first, I uh, I had to resign from the from my position at the university, and I had to hand in my my party document the, uh, the, the the membership book and they, we I had an official document that uh, said that I was going to be an employee of the State Department in East Germany and when I when I met the party secretary and I handed this guy that my the, the membership book he looked at me and said all right I know we'll never really find out but you're gonna do a good job so so he had an idea what what was going on uh-huh. and so with uh, within about a, a month of that invitation uh, by by this this short fellow uh, I moved to Berlin and this is where I you know I, I wound up with a suitcase and, uh, and, and, and not, not a whole lot just to pack my suitcase and I my belongings fit all in a suitcase and I had my first clandestine meeting. You know, I met uh, a fellow. There was a time and a place, and there was a code phrase. Uh, and uh, I met this uh, my new handler, uh, which uh, by by the my oh, jokes, I, I have a, a, a Nikolai. Okay. So Nikolai took me to a car, and this was this was my first big surprise, and I handled it really well. He said, uh, well, welcome, and we already have a task for you. I says, oh, great, this is wonderful, you know, what, what, what is it? He said, you got to find a place to live. <laughs> now, I think I showed no emotional response to that, even though inside I said, oh, shit, how the heck am I going to do this? Because all living space in, in East Germany was uh, controlled by the party, and there was a huge shortage. So for me as a single person to find something to live, I couldn't, no apartment would have been available. And I said, okay. So I found a, a, um, a, a, at the university I, I, I could... Uh, sleep overnight for a couple of nights in a, in a dorm. And I found myself a place. It was a dump. It was uh, um, outside of Berlin it's in, in a suburb. And I was wandering around there and asking people where I might find a place where I you know, just could, could sleep overnight. And eventually I found something, and it was uh, a, an outhouse, so to speak, not a toilet. It was an outbuilding, concrete, one, one room, with a bed and a chair, no table, and uh, a, a little room next door where they had running cold water and a stove. That was my home for about nine months. And I think uh, that made a really good impression on Nikolai. God forbid, I can't, I can't find anything. Now what? I'm done. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. You know, that, that was, they were testing me. Well, had you, when you say they were testing you, had you not found a place to live, was would that have been it for you, or would they have found uh, something for this you? Is, this is speculation, but based on uh, a real case where I, I met in Berlin accidentally, I met a classmate of mine in, uh, who was a classmate in high school, and he w- was going to do the same thing for the Stasi. And... Uh, he didn't pass the second test. The second test was doing, going over to West Berlin and, uh, and doing a little bit of, uh, um, uh, a little bit of work, like knocking on a door and, and, and under cover of a story, finding out, you know, who lived there and, and what they were doing, that kind of stuff. He went back to his handlers and he said, shit, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I he, he never uh, worked as an engineer. He, he studied engineering. Uh, he was done. And I think I would have been done too. So, you know, they were so damn ruthless, even though they were so nice to me. <laughs> There's no way I could have gone to the university. So I, I would have wound up someplace uh, on a farm or in a factory or whatever. Eventually, maybe sort of recovered in a period of years. But... Uh, I had no idea that, that my life was like I, I was on a on a on a on a high wire. Oh yeah, with, without without even that uh, the pole. Uh, that balancing. Uh. So a friend of mine that was a military Navy SEAL, but he used a term one time, and it's exactly yours. He said, "Well, I'm moving. I stabbed the lifeboat. He quit. He had no plan. He was just going to quit and move to California." And that's kind of with you is. You stabbed the lifeboat. There was no choice. I mean, I think that's what propels people to do certain things and become creative. You knew in your mind, right? If you did not find a place to live, you were done. So, you know, it was just that not only that urgency, but that, I I don't know, was it fear too? Fear of. I to disagree. I didn't know, I didn't even pursue this, uh, um, that that thought that I was done. That's in hindsight. But I couldn't fail. Failure was not an option, never was. You know that 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 was instilled in me by my mother, and since I succeeded in everything that I touched through university, I even became a good basketball player, even though I had no talent. But I couldn't fail at anything <clears throat> that was important to me, and I, there's no way failure was not an option. So you get this stunningly uh, beautiful one one room out out building with cold running water and a stove. Yeah. I can't imagine what that's like. Uh, but how does your training go now? What what does training look like? Is it you know because some people have a concept that's like they bring you into a classroom and they train you. Uh, what, what is it like to be trained by the KGB? First of all, and that might uh, that might even surprise you. There was no official plan. They may have had one, but they didn't share it with me. There was no like, okay, <clears throat> this month we do surveillance detection and next month we do that and we do secret writing. <clears throat> so <clears throat> everything was ad hoc, at, coming at me ad hoc and uh, one-on-one. And you never met anybody else, no other students, no other agent trainees at that time, right? I didn't even know that they had other students. It was completely in isolation. And initially when I was living in that dump, the me- the meetings were in Nikolai's vehicle or in in a place where, you know, whatever you call these, these apartments that, that were secret, right? 
like a safe house or something. Yeah, part of the yeah, uh, that's that's what you could call it. Part of that uh, training also uh, required me to take initiative. They told me, okay, you need to expand your knowledge of of you know what's important in life to become a a more well-rounded personality, such as uh, read certain uh, more novels, go to the theater, go to museums, the opera. Uh, and you know, that was great because they paid for for the stuff. Mm-hmm. And the last thing was, oh, oh, the first book they gave me to read was the constitution of West Germany. And, and they would give me West German, uh, uh, magazines to read. And, and this is where, um, once I had an apartment, they told me, you know, now you got to get yourself a TV set and watch, watch uh, West German television. Uh, again, already that was like against uh, proof that I was outside of the law because that wasn't allowed. <clears throat> but but so so it, 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 my initiative was was very important as to uh, what to pick there and with and the, the other thing I was told you must learn another language. It's, it was a rule that everybody who was going to the West had to speak at, at least two languages. So I had German. <clears throat> And then he allowed me to pick the other language. And since I had no, absolutely no problem with English in high school, I picked, I picked English. And uh, that eventually got me to a point where I'm talking to you today in uh, what is pretty darn good English. So what was your, you said you had a cover story. Is that the same cover story you gave to your family, to your parents to say, because initially, some- yes. Yeah. My mother knew that I was going to, going to be a diplomat. And you know she was a little bit disappointed because she saw me as a as a, a tenured professor uh, in East Germany. Tenured professors there were not too many at a university. This was the elite and highly highly respected in in the in the, this, in the town where where I went to college. There were uh, about a hundred thousand people who lived there. And tenured professors, maybe 20, and I was going to join that elite. <clears throat> she was somewhat disappointed, but I said, you know, listen, I'm going to have a really good career. I'm going to get to travel to other countries, blah, blah, blah. So she bought into it. Well, so you're going through this training. You start learning the language. When is it before things start becoming actionable? In other words, it's like, when do you start moving out of the training phase and into the more operational phase? You know, when do they now start giving you tests that really – mean something for the KGB. Yeah, there, <clears throat> there was an, another phase to the training uh, when uh, it, I don't want to get too much into detail because, you know, but I, if, if I do that, we're going to finish up this conversation in, in the evening. Uh, <laughs> at one point, it, uh, they discovered that my, my, I had made really, really good progress in English. And uh, when uh, that when that became knowledge, within about two, three weeks, I wound up in Moscow uh, because the, I, I was, well, first I had a trip to Moscow where I uh, had a chat with one American woman who had moved to Moscow, as had married to probably a KGB agent, 
who operated in the U.S. Uh, and uh, a professor who taught English at Moscow University. Obviously, she was KGB, and and they decided that I had enough talent to, with enough training to learn English well enough to, American English well enough to actually appear in the U.S. as a born American. And I strongly believe that this was a highly exceptional situation because um, um, I don't know anybody else or know, know of anybody else who was able to do that because everybody, all the, the illegals were typically smuggled in through other countries, most of them through Brazil, by the way. And that, that's still, Brazil is still pretty open uh, for those shenanigans. Anyway, so I was moved to Moscow and, and was trained there for another two plus years. Most, most of the training was English. Uh, I, I, I spent a lot of time reading English uh, learning more words, uh, interacting with this American woman who I met twice a week, and eventually interacting with the Cohens. You probably know that uh, they were atomic spies, members of the Rosenberg spy ring. And uh, the other part of the training that was very intense was tradecraft, because in Berlin, the, the, trade, the, the folks that did tradecraft were was second class, so to speak. You know, I was trained by the very best, particularly surveillance detection and keeping up with, you know, the other skills I was taught, taught, taught in, in Berlin, like, you know, practice my secret writing and Morse code and making sure that the, the encryption and decryption algorithm was all good. And uh, so after that two and a half years, uh, I had a, a practice trip to Canada. And I spent three months in Canada. That was a good idea because that gave me an idea what, what I could expect um, when I first uh, show up in the United States. What identity did you go into Canada under? Your real uh, one? German, German. I was uh, a German born in, in Hamburg. Uh, and um, So that was your first cover identity? Yes. And I, I had a couple of tasks there, actually. Um, those days there was the, the Quebec, uh, wanted to split from Canada. And they still I, want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I was, was to write some report about, you know, the, the political situation, you know, as I'm talking with the Canadians and, you know, I, as a, as a tourist, I had no problem interacting with, uh, Canadians, uh, particularly, I spent most of my time in Montreal. There was a reason for that because one of my tasks was to acquire a birth certificate of one Henry Van Randall, who was born someplace in California and passed away at, at an early age. And I was to uh, uh, send a, uh, a letter to the um, uh, the local government that kept the records uh, and I forgot what, what they were called, but I had an address and, and then uh, I, I put a, put a, a money order in that letter and I asked him for, to send me a copy of my birth certificate signed as Henry Van Randall. 
and uh, that and and a kitten. And I I rented, by the way, I rented a room in a small hotel, so the return address wouldn't have to give the hotel. So it was just the address, and I befriended the 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 folks that were living in that small hotel and, the, and they, uh, they ran the hotel to intercept that letter when it came to Henry Van Randall as a, you know, as a friend of mine, you know, because I wasn't Henry Van Randall. Anyway, uh, it took, you know, for three weeks I didn't hear from him. I didn't get a letter, four weeks. Eventually I called them and I yelled at them and I said, what's the matter with you? Why am I not getting my birth certificate? You got my money. And then within a week, I, the letter arrived, and I saw it when I, I went to visit uh, the, the folks that ran this motel. Uh, you know, I, I was just stopping by practically every day, and I saw that letter, and it says, hey, this is for my friend. I took it, went up to my room, and yes, yes, I got it. I opened the letter, and uh, yeah, there was a document in there. Except, and it was a copy of a birth certificate, but, but it was it was uh, in, in big red letters uh, stamped across, deceased. <laughs> now, that was a disappointment, man. I mean, like my well, heart especially to Henry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, now, <clears throat> this is when I should have left the country, right? Because what actually did happen, but they were too slow about it, this triggered an investigation of the fellow who, uh, who asked for that birth certificate. So when you say it triggered the investigation, you, you're writing to Cal- – I'm sorry, was it California you were writing to? California, yes. So somebody in California then tr- made a made – a, 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 you know, forwarded a uh, – Concern or whatever, but somebody triggered the investigation out of complaint. Yeah, the, the, the Royal Mounted Pol- Police was uh, informed, and they were slow. So what I did, I knew that I couldn't stay in that hotel, so I moved out. But I still had, you know, a couple of other places to visit, and I didn't want to. I did not want to uh, go back to Moscow having failed, even though the failure wasn't my fault, right? But I felt like a failure. And one of the things that uh, <clears throat> that we had planned to do at the end of my stay, I would talk to somebody in, uh, I was going to go to Windsor, Ontario, and I would, would talk to some Americans who, there was a lot of travel back and forth between the, and still is, <clears throat> between uh, Canada and the United States, and talk as if I were an American. And, and so my ambition, you know, I, I really could have been, should have been caught. As a matter of fact, on my way out, the airline should have been notified that a certain uh, uh, German <clears throat> came in this country and this is the, this is the, the, and they would have known my name and everything. They, the airline, <clears throat> it was Swiss Air, should have notified Canadians and I should have been arrested then. It was a failure of counterintelligence for sure. I got lucky, <clears throat> but I wound up in Windsor, Ontario, and I talked to, I went to a bar and I talked to an American who was, and I talked as if, uh, you know, I said, you know what, the the beer that they have here is so much better and blah, and that kind of stuff, indicating that I was actually American and there was no problem. So <clears throat> I came back to uh, Moscow 
at least having succeeded in one way. And uh, then we came up with plan B. Okay, go back to Berlin. We have to figure out what to do next. Hey, Jack, real quick, when you went back to Moscow uh, and you hadn't succeeded on the birth certificate, how was, how was that received by them? Um, did they understand that sometimes, just, you know, shit happens or? Yeah, yeah, they did. You know, they, they didn't criticize me. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, plan B was uh, go back to Berlin and uh, read as much as you can about Brazil and study Portuguese. So you know what that meant, you know, going through, going in through uh, Brazil. That wasn't bad because, you know, I, 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 I really, I still want to go visit Brazil one day. Beautiful, be- beautiful country. I've been down to Brasilia, Rio de Janeiro, you know, um, yeah. Sao Paulo. Uh, but yeah, it's the Portuguese. It's, all I knew were two words, obrigado and genada. So. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're welcome and thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I still remember when you, know, you started saying I am Eo Song. You know, that, that nasal yeah. sound. And very that, Italian sounding, too. It's almost, you start yeah. listening, it almost sounds oh. Italian, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I taught myself Spanish uh, uh, when I was in the U.S., and I realized that Spanish and Portuguese are close to identical, with the exception of the, uh, some words and the pronunciation. But anyway... <clears throat> <clears throat> and uh, I spent well, probably uh, it was close to a year in Berlin when they called me back to Moscow, and this is when it got serious because a an, a, a KGB agent had found the gravestone of, ba- of Jack Barsky on a cemetery, and he was able to acquire Jack Barsky's birth certificate. Where at? From okay. where? From you know, like whatever the, the no, I mean, what uh, what state or oh oh um, and, uh, outside of Washington D.C. Um, uh, Maryland or Virginia? Maryland. Yes, Maryland. Hey, this is your cover story. You've been living under all these years. Okay, where am I from? Oh my God! <laughs> no, 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 no. The cover story. That, I don't remember where I was buried, okay? Okay. So, <laughs> well, there you I, was, I was born in Orange, New Jersey, okay? So that I still remember. Okay. Mm. Well, as Mark Twain said, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. So uh, you're, you're alive with us today. So Can I throw something in? Yeah. Because it's so funny. I, I think I hold the world record of uh, having been resurrected three times. So Albrecht <laughs> Dittrich, that's the German name is listed as having died uh, in, in, in East Germany. I'm dead. Uh, Jack Barsky obviously died. And then ChatGPT uh, uh, was asked to write a biography of Jack Barsky, and ChatGPT has me dead in 2010. So here I am. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that ChatGPT. I can't even get it right. And we're talking with you, by the way, live today. So, folks, it is live. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that, but that's all right. Uh, no, I mean, it's not live, like we're not broadcasting, but I mean, but you're alive today. It's pretty obvious you're alive, so. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but plan A came came back in, into uh, into my life, and now it was just, I spent about six weeks preparing for the entry to the United States. I had to learn, uh, we had to um construct the backstory for Jack Barsky. I had to learn 
backstories for several false identities I would be using on traveling to the United States because it wasn't a direct flight. It was zigzag through Europe, Mexico, and eventually uh, entrance in, uh, at Chicago O'Hare. Uh, there was a problem I had with a tooth and that delayed my departure. I, I, I was treated, <clears throat> I, my, one of my molars was extracted at a KGB clinic and they didn't have Novocaine. They Ow. used something less powerful and coming out of that one, I was in really bad shape. So I spent, uh, they had me in, in Armenia for a week with my, with my liaison to just recover. And then one day, and it was in the fall of 1978, I uh, was uh, taken to Sherrod Meteor Airport. I had uh, nothing but Western stuff on me, clothes and so forth. I had a shortwave radio in my luggage. It was commercially available. I had Jack Barsky's birth certificate sewn into a secret compartment of, uh, of one of my uh, a bag that I a carry-on bag. And I had a, uh, uh, a, uh, a writing pad that, uh, that was acquired at Woolworths that had uh, the first 10 pages were impregnated with uh, some, some trace of a chemical that was to be used for secret writing. And the most important thing, I had so much information in my head. We're talking about, you know, the, the route that I was to take the people that I was going to meet where I would exchange one false passport for another. Um, the backstory of Jack Barsky, that was pretty complex and long. The, the communication plan, which consisted of several pages of discon disconnected uh, facts, like frequencies, um, meeting uh, places, meeting protocols, uh, at least one dead drop site and on and on and on. <clears throat> and they offered me to, uh, to take that with me in writing. And I declined because in those days, and it's unfortunately that I don't have this any anymore. My memory was perfect. Mm -hmm. So I, all of that was in my head and it, I retained it all. So there's again, proof of why they thought I would actually, be successful. And so whoever did the recruiting and, 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 you know, it was Herman and pretty much Herman and then Nikolai, uh, that determined I had what it took. <clears throat> and oh, by the way, I, mean, I need to volunteer something. And that may be a big surprise, even to you guys. I never met one person uh, who was a KGB psychologist. I never got a psychological test. And the only thing, nobody ever really taught me people skills. The only thing that I got uh, to read uh, with regard to people skills was uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was sort of an afterthought. Again, they, they unfortunately, we're going to have to stop here. This is some, some idiots who's running around with a leaf blower to clean the hallway when there's nothing to be blown away. So it's going to take about uh, uh, like two or three minutes because you, you might be picking up that noise. I do, and it bothers me. 
Well, you folks might have noticed just a little bit of a gap there. It was the old leaf blower ploy. I'm thinking of Inspector Clouseau, you know, and all the different ploys. I got to tell you, though, Jack, it's funny because one of Steve's friends, actually it's his partner, who got shot during a, um, a, a an operation that they were doing, Kevin Stevens. Steve, what did we try like three times to record him? And the guy kept cutting the lawn. Finally, we just said, screw it. We were just going to, we finally ended up having to do the recording because every time yeah. we set it up, the guy with the lawnmower would be right outside. He'd hit it again. <laughs> yep. It's like somebody was tapping our communications, listening in on us. We call yeah, it. In this case, in my case, it's, it's uh, Russian interference, but uh, because they're so incompetent these days, they, 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 they're not doing a really good job with it. <laughs> Not, not what they used to be. So, but you were talking about um, psych evals, no psych evals. So, how did they? Was it just up to the case officer then, or just up to your handler? Yeah, to exactly. <clears throat> there was there was just really nobody else. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two. 